Uh, We're going to turn our attention to God's Word today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 9. I had a a mental blank right there. Uh, I'm going to invite Genesee to come. She's going to read the Scripture, and I have the distinct privilege of handing off to my good friend, Pastor Shane, today, who's going to be teaching on the subject of peace. And so if you would, turn your attention to God's Word now as we begin our time. This is God's word from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, Genesee. Happy Advent, Sound City. Good to see you guys. As Pastor Aaron said, I'm Shane. I'm also one of the pastors here, just for any of you who haven't had the chance to meet just yet. And we are on week two of our A Tale of Two Advents series. And uh, what we noticed last week is that several of you missed... And so we figure either you were in a food coma somewhere uh, lying on the ground or you were traveling around and maybe with family and others uh, over the Thanksgiving weekend. And so for you especially, but maybe for everyone as well, just um, it might be helpful to get a little bit of context for where we were as we started the series. And so we'll do that in just a minute, but let's pray together first and uh, then we'll begin our time. Uh, Pray with me. Lord God, as we reflect on uh, this Advent season On what it means for us, I pray for myself and for uh, this church family uh, gathered here this morning that you teach us from your word, that you would change us and sanctify us with what you teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit in us, and that all of this would be for your glory. I pray that you'd help me to be faithful to you and to your word this morning as well as I teach, and I pray uh, all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Okay, so some context for the series. Now, first of all, last week we started with some basics. We talked about how Advent is really just a fancy Latin word that Aaron wanted to use. Uh, Just a fancy Latin word for arrival, for coming. That's what Advent means. And so when we say the sermon title uh, is, the sermon series title is A Tale of Two Advents, what we're talking about is the reality of Jesus' two comings, his two arrivals, his two advents. Uh, Next, then, as a way of framing out an understanding of the important role the two Advents play in redemptive history, Pastor Aaron talked a little bit about this this overarching meta-narrative of the Bible, about this grand sweeping story of the Scriptures and how they move from the creation of all things through the agency of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to the fall of our first parents into sin, leading to the infection of sin into all humanity, including to each one of us, then on to God's gracious and loving choosing of Israel to be his first covenant people, to then Jesus' first coming, his first arrival, his first advent some 2,000 years ago, and then to the grafting in of a multitude of people from outside of God's Jewish people into the family of God in the age in which we now live, which is the age of the church. And then finally, Jesus' second advent. His appending second and final arrival that will inaugurate the age of eternal life with God for all of his people. Last week we talked about how right now we live in the middle of this kind of Advent sandwich, so to speak. 
And I gave that name to Pete also as a good band name. Doesn't that sound like a good band name? Advent Sandwich? No? No. I like it. Pete liked it. Um, As a church, we do. We live in this time of the in-between. That's our reality. It's the pond we swim in. It's all we've ever known in this life is this living in the in-between, living in the already not yet reality of Jesus having truly come at his first advent in fulfillment of prophecy. Then him living a life without sin, shedding his blood on the cross to pay for the sins of those he came to save, then overcoming Satan's sin and death and giving us real hope of eternal life with God through Jesus. And yet, we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting. Because in the age of the church, we're still waiting for Jesus' encore performance, for his second coming, for his second advent. Finally then, last week we also introduced the Advent topics that we'll be unpacking together through the course of this short series. Topics that actually matter quite a bit to those of us who are living in the in-between. Topics like joy and love and hope, which Pastor Aaron covered last week, and peace, which we'll dig into a little bit more this morning. But as we turn the corner now to talk about biblical peace, it's also good for us to remember what we learned last week about hope as well. We learned that uh, biblical hope is far more than blind faith. Biblical hope is a grounded hope. It's trusting the person of God and the word of God. And it's a proper and confident expectation in all of God's promises, including the promise that he's coming again one day at his second advent to usher into eternity all those that the Father has given to him. And then last week at the end, we also sought to, or maybe began to, 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 to seek out an answer to the question of uh, how those with a hope like that ought to then live. Now this week, as we turn our focus to a related theme, the theme of biblical peace, and we're going to do that by working our way through six attributes of biblical peace. The first one is the language of biblical peace. The language of biblical peace. And peace is kind of an elusive little word, isn't it? Like hope, peace is another biblical theme that doesn't really get a lot of play from the pulpit. It doesn't really get an awful lot of attention. Why would you guys think that is? Why would we not spend much time on hope? Is it that we're so over-familiar with the word peace that we just make assumptions that we kind of just know what it is? Or maybe it's because it's such a vague, nonspecific term that we just kind of gloss over it a bit. Let me ask this. What do you picture in your mind when you hear the word peace? Take a minute, think about that. Maybe close your eyes if you need to. Uh, What images, what ideas, what memories come into your mind when you think about the word peace? I think for me, before preparing to preach and teach on this topic, uh, I'd have said that the idea of peace brought to mind, uh, for for me, things like quiet, which in my house is also pretty elusive, (laughs) a house with three boys that I think have the spiritual gift of not being quiet at times. But nonetheless, that's one of the things that I think about. When I think about peace, I think about quiet. Maybe I think about vacation. I think about sitting by a pool with no agenda, sleeping in, uh, maybe on Christmas, (laughs) things like that. Uh, Peace brings to mind for me feelings of safety, feelings of maybe a lack of fear or worry. Any of those resonate with you as things that you think about when you think about the concept of peace? As a little kid, uh, I grew up in northern Illinois, Uh, about an hour west of Chicago, and um, as a kid, the house we grew up in, we kind of lived in a, it was a pretty wooded area that we lived in, a little bit set back from the main road, kind of uh, in the woods a bit, 
And I can remember tons of nights as a little kid where uh, I'd hear a noise outside or something else would scare me a little bit. And uh, I would go to my parents' room. It was at the, all the way to the other end of the house. I'd kind of sneak down there. And I wouldn't go in and wake them up. But what I would do is I would go in and I would sneak under their bed. And um, I guess maybe I was embarrassed or something of being scared. But uh, what was interesting, what I found, like, I feel like if my memory is serving me at all, like, when I would crawl under their bed, I would almost immediately fall right to sleep. And often not wake up until I heard them stirring the next morning, and then I'd uh, try and find a way to sneak out without being seen. (laughs) And for me, that's just one of the things I think about when I think about peace. And if I were to psychoanalyze myself a little bit, I'd I'd guess that what was happening there is that I must have felt safe. I must have felt protected. I probably felt a lack of fear, a lack of worry that gave me some sense of peace that really allowed me to truly rest. And I think there's a little bit of truth in that feeling about what peace really is buried in that little story. Just like there's likely some truths about peace tucked away in all of our experiences and in all our simple notions of what peace really is. But the best place for us to try and discover a definition for peace is not from our own experience, is it? No, the best place for us to go in defining peace is to let God define it for us, to let God's language for peace inform our understanding of it. And when we do that, when we look to the scriptures, to the language of biblical peace, we find that it uses one primary word in the Old Testament and one primary word in the New Testament in its defining of peace. Now, the the word in the Old Testament that is most regularly used is used 236 times, and it's the word shalom. Many of you have heard that word, shalom. And shalom is a word that's just packed with all sorts of meaning And it's a word that's incredibly helpful for us in understanding this Advent theme of peace from a truly biblical perspective. Here's some of what's included in this idea of shalom. Shalom means completeness, wholeness. It means prosperity. It means safety. It means good health, well-being. It means unaffectedness. That's an interesting one. That's not, not a lack of caring. It's just being unaffected by things, probably things that are maybe troublesome or worrisome. It also carries with it, uh, Shalom does, this idea of having a peace with God. It carries with it ideas of salvation. That's what peace means. That's what Shalom means in the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, the primary word used to communicate the idea of peace in the Greek is the word irene. And we find the variants of this Greek word 91 times in the New Testament, carrying with it a range of meanings as well. Irene means harmony. It means uh, concord or unity in all of our relationships. That's going to be personal relationships, relationships within a community like this, or even uh, in between governments. Arena means a state of well-being or good order, good health. It means security. It means tranquility. It means to be without worry, to be without trouble. And this Greek word also carries with it, just like its Hebrew counterpart, the idea of salvation and the idea of peace with God. So as we take the Old Testament and New Testament language together, then we begin to see this really full, rich definition of peace, don't we? For most of us, I'd bet that peace has now become a bigger and grander thing than we ever thought, even from what we thought just a few minutes ago. And as you're looking now at the definition that should be up on the screen there for you uh, of all that peace entails, all that it includes, and now as you think about your own life, your own relationships with others, your own relationship with God, now what comes to mind when you think about peace? 
How would you say you're doing in your experience of this peace as we see it defined in the scriptures? Let me get at it another way. Let me ask this. How does peace play into the answer that you give folks when you're asked how you're doing? When someone comes up to you, someone you know, maybe even really well, says, how are you doing? Is it a common thing for you to say, you know what? I am so at peace. (laughs) No, right? We laugh because that's not common at all. That's not something we would typically say. But why is that the case? Why is that the case? In the scriptures, those two words that we just talked about, there are other secondary words that also mean peace. But just in those primary words, peace is addressed in the scriptures over 300 times. Do we think maybe God's trying to get our attention with something? Is peace something that God would have most of us pay more attention to than we currently do? That's a good question. I believe the answer is yes. Yeah. And as we move through our discussion of the other five attributes of biblical peace this morning, I think we're going to begin to understand more about why. So let's keep going now, and we'll look at our second attribute of biblical peace, which is the model of biblical peace. The model of a biblical peace. And when I say model of biblical peace, what I mean for us to figure out is what the Bible has to say about the ideal standard of peace and what it is. We need to know what, or in this case, who it is that sets the paradigm that we're to measure our understanding of peace against. And what we see in the scriptures loud and clear is that God himself, Jesus himself, is the model. He's the standard for our understanding of peace and our experience of peace. If you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah 9, where Genesis got us started this morning, that'll serve you well. If not, go ahead and flip there. And we're going to begin to unpack what the Bible has to say about God himself being our model and standard of peace. Let me read that passage for us again. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now here in Isaiah, in this prophetic scene of Jesus' first advent, we find our model for biblical peace. In this advent scene, we find Jesus given the title Prince of Peace. And we find out that the reign of peace, of this Prince of Peace, will be forevermore. What we're seeing here is that God himself, Jesus himself, is our model for understanding and experiencing biblical peace. Similarly, we also see God as our standard for biblical peace in passages that describe Jesus as peace personified. One example of this would be in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, where the Apostle Paul offers us this closing benediction at the end of his letter, saying, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. That's Jesus here that he's talking about when he's saying the Lord of peace We see Jesus as peace personified even more clearly in Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul explaining, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. 
The scriptures show God himself to be the standard and model for peace in other ways as well. In passages that uh, give God, uh, the more proper God, a title of God of peace. And we find that in verses like Philippians 4.9 where the Apostle Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Altogether, we see this term, this title for God, God of peace, five times, showing, making clear that he is the model and standard for our right understanding and experience of biblical peace. So why does that matter? Why might it matter so much that God himself, Jesus himself, would be our model and standard for biblical peace? Well, number one, I think it just helps us to grow in our own understanding of God and his character. It helps us know him better and grow in relationship with him when we know his attributes, right? For me, to think of God as holding titles like Lord of Peace, God of Peace, Prince of Peace, It helps me to see him as he is, as a loving father who wants to give me grace and a peace that surpasses understanding more than he wants to punish me for sinning against him. It helps me see him not only as the God of justice who rightly must judge sin, but also as the God of love and hope and joy and peace that he truly is. And then number two, knowing God himself as our model for peace helps us better understand the third attribute of biblical peace that we'll look at now, which is the mediator of biblical peace. The mediator of biblical peace. Well, for starters, what does it mean to speak of a mediator? A mediator is kind of like a go-between, right? A mediator is an intercessor, one who intercedes to help resolve a problem or a conflict between two parties. In many ways, a mediator is a peacemaker. Mediator is a peacemaker. So when we speak of the mediator of biblical peace, we're talking about a peacemaker that's responsible for interceding between God and man in order to bring about peace between them. So, sound sitting, first test of the day, first test question. Uh, who would you guess the mediator of peace is according to the Bible? Jesus. Oh, your Sunday school teachers would be so happy. <laughs> Good job. But let's check our work. Let's look at the scriptures. We'll check our work a little bit and make sure you're right. Looking forward to the advent of Jesus prophetically, Isaiah, in chapter 53, 5, he says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So what are we saying here? What are we seeing here? What we're seeing is that the punishment of Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins is the means by which biblical peace is made available to us. Jesus is the mediator of biblical peace. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says something similar. Paul saying, For in him, meaning Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what are we seeing this time? Again, we see Jesus as the mediator between God and man. We see Jesus making peace and reconciling the relationship between God and us. We see Jesus making peace available to us 
in a saving way through his shed blood on the cross to pay our sins penalty. Then another example from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 10, we find Peter sharing with others the incredibly good news that God sent to his people that peace is available to them through Jesus. Saying the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. That's mediator language. That's mediator language. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wants to make it really, really clear to us. He wants to make it really simple so we wouldn't have any doubts. So he says it plainly in verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of peace between God and man. He's the mediator of a peace that carries with it ideas of completeness and wholeness and well-being and harmony in our relationships a peace that carries with it freedom from fear and worry and a peace that mediates salvation and eternity with God to those God has drawn and will draw to himself. Is that good news to anyone this morning? In John 16, after giving instructions to his earliest disciples, Jesus says to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome all in this world that would cause you to legitimately fear or worry, Jesus says. So be at peace. Sound City, can I ask you, what's the thing or things you most fear or worry about in your life right now? What are you fearing most these days? What or who is it that consumes you with worry? What or who is it that consumes you with anxiety? Now, without in any way making light of the very real trials and tribulations that many, really all of us, experience, let me ask you, do you really believe that your fears and worries right now are exempt from Jesus' words to you? Do you not believe that he's talking directly to you in your situation when he says, I have come that you might have peace? When he says, yes, you'll have trials in this life, but take heart, don't fear, be at peace. Do you think he's talking to someone else when he says, be at peace, I have overcome the world for you. I've overcome the world for you. For some of you in here today, you don't have a regular sense of this Jesus-mediated peace that we've been talking about this morning because if you're honest with yourself, you don't trust God at his word. If you think this might be you, let me offer you The degree to which we lack faith in God and his word and his promises is the degree to which we will lack the kind of peace that Jesus died to make available to us. What is it that you're worried about, stressed about, fearful of, that you need to prayerfully and in faith trust God with today? John Calvin once said, So long as we trust to the grace of Christ No troubles that can arise will prevent us from enjoying composure and serenity of mind. Let us then remember that faith is seated amidst the storms of temptations, amidst various dangers, amidst violent attacks, amidst contests and fears, that our faith may not fail or be shaken by any kind of opposition. Sound City, May we increasingly be a people that trust in God, our model and mediator of peace, that we might experience the fullness of peace that he makes available to us. 
Well, that brings us to our fourth attribute of biblical peace. So, so far we've talked about the language of biblical peace, the model of biblical peace, the mediator of biblical peace, and now the exclusivity of biblical peace. So to kick us off on this one, let me read for us from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Luke here, speaking of Jesus' first advent, says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to all mankind. Is that what it says? No. It says, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Other translations say, peace on those on whom his favor rests. What do you think about that, Sound City? What's going on here? Well, Jesus' first advent has just happened. And with Jesus' birth, the angels break into song and worship, praising God that he has made true peace with him available to humanity through Jesus. And most specifically, the angels are praising God that by his own initiative, he has given fullness of peace, salvation, and wholeness of relationship with God to those with whom he is pleased. And what do you guys remember from our study of Hebrews about pleasing God? Anyone have a verse that can remember that says about pleasing God? Oh, Travis will have to give you some candy. You got it, Vicky. Good job. Yeah, Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what do we have here then in Luke? We have a condition for receiving the fullness of peace available through Christ. That's what we have. Here in this passage, we're faced with a difficult biblical truth that the peace spoken of here in Luke and throughout the scriptures has a limited target audience. Making this even clearer still, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's the condition, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss what just happened there. Paul draws a causal connection between our faith in God and our experience of peace with God through Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us then, should it, that the telling of the tale of Jesus' first advent here in Luke tells us also that peace with God, while available to all, is only given out or mediated to those who have put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We live in a day when culture generally takes great offense and considers unloving any claims of exclusivity, don't we? And even more so, the idea of any religious exclusivity that would claim that there's only one particular way to joy or to God. But the biblical reality is this. When the scriptures show us a glimpse of God's exclusivity in his saving work through Jesus, that's the very thing that most puts God's love for us and his grace for us on display. There's some of you in here today who are not yet Christians. And this peace that we've been talking about this morning feels really foreign and far from you. You don't have a sense of real peace with God because the peace with Real peace with God comes only out of the overflow of being made right with him through faith in Jesus. And therefore, for now, you've been excluded from knowing the peace that we've been talking about today. 
You haven't repented and said, God, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Forgive me and cause me to follow you from here on out. And if that sounds like you, if I'm describing you, then we're really glad you're here today. Because God's desire is to show his great love for you through today's teaching. His desire is to take biblical passages like the one we just walked through, talking about his exclusivity. He wants to take biblical passages like these and let it raise a warning flag in your heart that would in turn cause you to turn from sin and respond to Jesus in faith. And that could start for you today. You need only to choose it, to repent of your sins, to submit your life by faith to God's leading from today forward. There is a Presbyterian evangelist from the mid-1800s who spoke about the elusiveness of biblical peace to those outside of faith in Jesus. And he said this, Those without faith in Jesus are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. They know not what it is to be free from cares and troubles, and how should they? Why should they not be restless and tossed forever without solid peace? For they have not found anything which can satisfy them. And what is for them more distressing still is that they never can, even with all their searching, unless they will seek it in God. To those of you who are not yet Christians, I hope you're hearing me loud and clear that you can leave here today with a peace with God that overflows into peace in all other areas of your life as well. But this choice, which only comes through faith, is up to you. Now, if it sounds like I've been describing you, if I'm talking about you and you want a little bit of this peace that we're talking about today, then don't leave here this morning without talking to myself or one of the other pastors or the Christian that brought you here this morning so that we can help answer your questions and help celebrate with you your faith in God through Christ and the peace that you're now beginning to sense and the peace that you have positionally with God already if you just put your faith in him. Now, in looking at the Advent theme of peace today, we've already studied four attributes of a biblical peace so far. And in those four, what we've been talking about to this point has largely been about the positional peace that we have with God and about the more passive Holy Spirit-led overflow of that peace into other parts and experiences of our life. But now, as we turn our attention to the fifth and sixth attributes, we're turning to the more practical, the more application-oriented side of the biblical peace equation. And the first of these more pragmatically focused attributes is this, our calling to biblical peace. Our calling to biblical peace. Let me start by asking you, did you know that if you are a Christian, that you are called to biblical peace? Did you know that if you belong to God through Christ, peace is not only a gift that's available to you through faith in Jesus, but it's also part of your calling? I bet that most of us don't think about peace as a calling kind of thing. But when we survey the scriptures for what God says there about peace, we find this regular drumbeat rhythm of encouragements and commands and exhortations that make clear this notion that our calling as Jesus' disciples includes a call to actively seeking peace in our lives. Let's start our look at this by going to Colossians, where Paul has some words for the Colossian church in chapter 3, verse 15, where he instructs them, saying, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There it is. 
As Christians, we're called to let the peace that comes from God in Christ rule in our hearts. It's our calling to pursue shalom, irene, peace, and to seek to live out that peace in all of life. We see this calling to peace all throughout the scriptures. If we'll take just a few examples from Psalm 34:14, the psalmist commands, "Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it." In Hebrews 12:14, the author of Hebrews instructs his hearers and readers and us, "Strive for peace with everyone." Then in Romans Chapter 12 and 14, the Apostle Paul gives instruction to the church at Rome, admonishing them, saying, first in 1218, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then in chapter 14, verse 19, Paul saying, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. The Bible seems really clear on this, doesn't it? That as Christians, we are called to strive for peace, to seek after peace, to pursue peace, to pursue living peaceably with one another. There should be no doubt that as Jesus' disciples, part of our calling is to actively and intentionally pursue biblical peace. Now, for some of you, even though you're a Christian, you'd say you're not living with a general sense of this kind of peace in your life right now. You're not experiencing harmony in your relationship with God and others. You don't have any degree of that shalom, spirit-led wholeness kind of thing that we've been talking about this morning. And if that sounds like you, then let me suggest that you might not be experiencing the peace available to you through faith in Christ because you haven't embraced your calling to biblical peace. Does that resonate with anyone this morning? Maybe for you, it would be true to say you... You really have not sought peace in all your relationships as much as you possibly can. Or maybe for you, you've become adept at seeking out a false peace that just ignores problems and conflicts in the name of peace. For you, if that sounds like you, it might be time for you to prayerfully repent of some hard-heartedness. It might be time for you to seek out genuine reconciliation in all of your relationships, to seek out and to offer to others genuine forgiveness as led by the Holy Spirit. Sound City, if there are specific relationships of disunity that you continue to ignore, or even if your struggle is just more general, and it's this general bitterness or anger or pride that has just taken root in your life, then that's sin for you. That's sin in your life. It's a stronghold. It's a strategy of the enemy to keep you from experiencing the very real shalom kind of peace that's available to you through your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Christians, God's calling on your life is to biblical peace. The kind we've been talking about this morning, the kind on display throughout the scriptures, and the kind sourced in God as the true model and standard for biblical peace. But as we talk about our calling to biblical peace. Maybe you're wondering a little more about the question of how to pursue that peace once we get beyond just the seeking of reconciliation and harmony in our relationships. Well, the scriptures have us covered there as well, which brings us to our sixth and final attribute of biblical peace, the pursuit of biblical peace. The pursuit of biblical peace. And what was fascinating to me as I studied this attribute of peace and followed this thread throughout the scriptures was this pattern that began to, 
began to rise to the surface that the Bible establishes between our experience of God's peace and our practice of basic spiritual disciplines, and especially those related to God's word. We'll start our look at this final attribute of peace in the Old Testament with Isaiah 26.3, where the prophet declares, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. So what can we learn from this passage that might help us unlock our experience of biblical peace that we've been talking about this morning? Well, what we see here is a general principle being presented that looks something like the degree to which our minds and hearts are stayed on, focused on God, is the degree to which we will experience his peace. And how do we focus on him? How do we stay our minds on him? Through prayer, through community, through using our gifts, through serving, of course, all those things, but primarily through his word. Are you seeing the relationship there? Let's look at another one from the Old Testament. Let's look at Psalm 119, verse 165, the longest chapter in Scripture, by the way. It says, Great peace have those who love your law, which is to say your word, the Scriptures, and nothing can make them stumble. So what keys to the pursuit of biblical peace do we find here? What do we see the experience of biblical peace tied to here? It's tied to those who love the word of God. And further still, the psalmist declares, for the one who loves God's law, apparently nothing, nothing can make them stumble. Apparently our love of God's word, which assumes disciplined time in God's word regularly, in case that's not clear, seems to weigh pretty heavily in our own experience of biblical peace. If we had more time, where we would be going next, we'd be into the New Testament and we'd pick up the trail again of this relationship between the spiritual disciplines related to God's word and the Christian's experience of peace. I'll put all these on the website, but where we'd be going, if we had time, was Romans 8, 6, Romans 15, 13. We'd move on to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. We'd look at Philippians 4, 4-7. through 7. We might even go back to Job and look at a couple of really cool verses in Job 22, verses 21-23. through 23. And what you would see there, what you will see there if you go, is over and over again this clear relationship between the possession of godly wisdom and the multiplication of grace and peace from God in our lives. Sound City, have you known this to be true in your own relationship with God? Does what I'm saying match your own experience? Has it been that during the times and seasons when you most prioritize time with God through his word, that you've also had the greatest sense of peace as well? Yeah, of course that's true. Let me offer to you that the primary way God speaks to us is through his word. And the primary way that we speak back to him is through prayer. And yet I've had countless, countless conversations with folks who come and are talking to one of us who are feeling far from God and experiencing little to no peace in their lives. And without exception, what they've all had in common is what they've never said to me, which is, yep, my prayer life rocks. I'm in the Word all the time. I just don't have peace. (laughs) Words I've never heard. Genuine peace and unity is seldom achieved in any good friendship or relationship without a significant investment of time. And our relationship with God is no different. 
The pursuit of biblical peace will always require of us the regular investment of time with him in his word. And the fruit of this investment, I promise you, will always be depth of relationship with Jesus, our prince of peace, and the growing sense of God's peace that always accompanies our pursuit of him. As we wrap up our teaching time, let me close with a question. Sound City, where does your peace come from? In this Advent season, as we approach Christmas, the anniversary celebration of the birth of our Lord Jesus, where does your peace come from? As we live in the in-between, awaiting Jesus' second arrival, his second Advent, where does your peace come from? In your seeking of peace in the midst of daily trials and struggles, where does your peace come from? Sound City, may we always be a people that knows that Jesus is the answer to every one of these questions. May we always be a people found increasing in our experience of the shalom kind of peace that we've discovered is available to us in Jesus. And may we always be a people found busy sharing the good news of salvation and peace with God through Jesus to all who would listen. Especially this time of year, amen? Yeah. We're going to turn to a time of response here in a minute, but let me pray for us before we uh, do that. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for myself and the friends gathered here that you would cement in our minds and hearts the truths we unpacked today about the multifaceted shalom kind of peace that is available to us through faith in you. Establish us in your peace now, Lord, we pray as we turn now to a time of response to what you've been teaching us this morning. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.